Daniel chapter 1. Uh, Daniel chapter 1. If you want to follow along in one of the Bibles in front of you, in the, the chair in front of you, it is on page 1369 of the church Bible, or don't be afraid to use the table of con- contents. God very kindly gave us a table of contents at the front of uh, almost every Bible, and so use that and you will find the book of Daniel, which is actually uh, the last of what we call the major prophets. Because today we are beginning uh, a brand new series on this Old Testament book of Daniel. For the last several years now, we've actually been working our way as a church, kind of slowly but surely and deliberately through the whole story of the Old Testament. So we're not covering every word or every book, but kind of the main story of the Old Testament. And we began a few years ago uh, in the beginning in Genesis. Um, And today we begin Daniel, which brings us quite a bit closer um, to the end of the Old Testament story. So as you can see on the screen, our, our uh, series is called Thriving in Babylon. Thriving in Babylon. That is not original with us. It actually comes from a book uh, by the name, uh, by, uh, written by a pastor by the name of Larry Osborne. But it raises a question that I think is a really key question and one that all of us should ask here in 2023. And the question is this, is it possible for a Christian to thrive in Babylon. Here's what I mean by that. Can a person really follow Jesus? Can a person uh, have an impact? Can they stay pure? Can they walk in the Spirit? Can they live the life of abundant life that Christ calls us to, even in a culture that seems to be fighting against that and pushing back against that in every different um, form? So if you've never, or if you've asked that question before, can I, you know, how can I stay pure? How can I live uh, for Christ even in a kind of a, a hostile environment? Uh, you are not alone to ask that question. Uh, there's actually a whole psalm that is kind of rooted around this. It's Psalm 137. Um, psalm 137 is written by a, an unknown author. We don't know uh, their name, but we know that they were an exile living in captivity away from God's good promised land, and they were living in Babylon. And they asked this question in Psalm 137. It says this, it says, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and we wept when we remembered Zion. So we thought back from where we'd come in God's holy land and, and here in Babylon, we just wept because we missed that. There on the poplars, on the the trees beside the the river, we hung up our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy and said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. But we asked, how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? So in other words, is it even possible to find joy? Is it even possible to find hope and meaning and worship of God in a place where it seems like not only is God absent, but it seems like everything is pushing against God? Is it even possible to thrive in Babylon? Well, for the next eight weeks, we are going to dig into this question by looking at the life of Daniel and some of his fellow exiles. Um, and be prepared to be blown away by what we are going to see over these next um, eight weeks together. Because Daniel is far from just a children's story. Um, there's some really kind of interesting and interactive stories in it, but it is so much more than just a children's story. But it is a book full of wisdom and instruction, intense words, 
hope, inspiration, and all of these things. And here's the deal. Even though Daniel was written now like 2,500 years ago, it's just fascinating to me that these words couldn't be more relevant for the day that we live in in 2023. And so we are going to spend the next eight weeks, as I said, uh, digging into them um, together. So a spoiler alert, the book of Daniel actually takes place when God's people are living in Babylon. Now, if you know much about the Old Testament or remember your Old Testament history, you know that God's people living in Babylon, that ain't right. That is not the way it's supposed to be. God's people are supposed to be living in the promised land. Why do I say that? Well, you see, way back in Genesis 12, which was about 2000 BC, we studied this a few years back. We're just going to walk through where we've been. Uh, in 2000 BC, or 2000 BC, God spoke to a man named Abraham. And he said, Abraham, in spite of all your failures and your shortcoming, we are going to enter into a covenant relationship. And God makes a promise to Abraham that he was going to make him and his descendants into a great nation. And not just a great nation, but a lasting nation that would last uh, forever. And then that is passed on to Abraham's descendants, to Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The only problem is by the time you get to the end of Genesis and get to the very next book, the second book of the Bible, you see this promise is being threatened. Why? Because God's covenant people, this great and lasting nation, is now living not in the Holy Land, but they're living in Egypt, where they are living as slaves to Pharaoh. And again, that ain't right. That's not the way it's supposed to be. And so the people cry out to God and they call to God for for someone to deliver them. And God sends Moses. And Moses uh, goes to Pharaoh and he, he, he leads the people out of slavery. They go across miraculous three through the Red Sea, uh, across the wilderness, and they come all the way to the edge of the promised land. That brings us to the books of uh, Joshua and Judges and the book of Ruth. Joshua leads the people into the promised land and they begin to kind of inhabit this land and live as the people that God called them to, to live. Here's the problem. If you remember those books, it, it's almost like a spiritual schizophrenic time for these people because one minute they're following God and faithful to him and the next minute they're you know following idols and it's kind of this cycle that goes around and around and this goes on for a long time until finally about 1000 BC so about a thousand years after Abraham at last the promise receives kind of this great news because finally there becomes a king who is after God's heart his name is David And under David, the nation thrives. They live predominantly at peace. Uh, They're prosperous. They love and they worship God. And kind of under David, that seems to be really one of the high points in Israel's history. uh, After David dies, his son Solomon takes over. And maybe you remember when we studied Solomon that Solomon starts out very strong. In fact, Solomon is the one who finally builds the temple, the place for God to be worshipped there in that promised land. It's a part of this covenant relationship that they're going to be a great and lasting nation. Uh, Actually, Solomon renews that covenant uh, with God and the people. Uh, the, The nation grows and thrives, and that's really great. The only problem is Solomon's also having some internal struggles. And while he's leading the nation, he finds that his heart is also drifting away from God. And specifically, he's tempted in the areas of money, very wealthy, in the areas of of women. He has all of these foreign wives and in the area of power. And he doesn't handle those things very well. And his heart slips away and the nation begins to slip away from God. And so finally, when Solomon dies, which is around 9 
30 BC, something terrible happens. This kingdom that's supposed to be a good and lasting kingdom is divided. And they have a civil war and God's people are in this fight with one another and there's a northern kingdom and there's a southern kingdom because of this war. Now again, this brings us to the time of Kings and Chronicles as well as, remember just last year we studied um, Elijah and Elisha. And again, this is another time in Israel's history when they're kind of back and forth, in and out. They'll have a good king and they'll follow God, but then they'll turn and they'll worship idols. And so God will warn them. Here, guys, if you continue to turn your back on me, there will be consequences. And God is super clear with his people. And he gives this this warning. If you continue to live like all the other nations around you, if you continue to practice injustice, if you continue to worship idols, there will be consequences. The first consequence comes when they continue to reject God. And in 722, a superpower from the north named Assyria comes and marches through and basically destroys and takes captive the people of the northern kingdom of Israel and take them back to Assyria. But at least Jerusalem, the temple, aren't destroyed because they are in the southern kingdom of Judah. But again, the kings are in and out, back and forth. God continues to warn them until at last the second consequence comes in 605. BC, when the evil Babylonian empire from the east marches across that area of the world, including marches across a Judah, and basically Jerusalem is destroyed, the temple is ransacked, and the people, including Daniel, are exiled uh, to Babylon. They're taken as captives. We have a picture of what that might have looked like, the people being dragged away, carried away, marched away from their home there in Jerusalem. And at that moment, when the Babylonians come in and destroy Jerusalem, by all accounts, this is a moment when evil wins, right? This is a time when all is lost, because how could this happen and evil wins? And one of the people being marched away from Jerusalem as a captive is a teenage boy by the name of Daniel. In fact, this Babylonian tablet we've got a picture of here uh, goes back to that time and it lists all of the different nations that, the, that Babylon conquered. And, and in the chloroform writing of this, there's the, the names of the Hebrew people of Judah. We have another carving from around that time that, that shows, this case, the Jewish, some of the Jewish royalty being led away to captivity. The writing underneath it says this, that, that they came into Babylon carrying only the things that they had on their back. It, because it's just such a, a horrible time. Did you know that Babylon is actually listed about 300 times in the Bible, and it is never good. It is always a problem. So in Daniel, when we talk about Babylon, like I'm doing right now, we're talking about the literal nation of Babylon. It's today what we would call modern-day Iraq. That's where that, that empire was. Later on, however, and I'm also talking about, like, about it like this, Babylon becomes symbolic for anything that's evil, anything that's kind of against um, God. So in the New Testament, um, they call the Roman Empire Babylon. In the book of Revelation, Babylon is used to describe really any world system that is in opposition um, to Jesus. And so every culture, every time has their, their Babylon. So here we are. Uh, not long after the almost complete destruction of his home, living with little hope 
in a culture that is opposed to everything that he believes and everything that he was raised with is where we find Daniel at the beginning of the book of Daniel. So let's jump into it. Daniel chapter 1. We know what's going on in the world at that time. Let's see what's happening in Daniel's life. In verse 1 of chapter 1, it says this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia, and he put in the treasure house, and he put them in the treasure house of his God. So right at the beginning, these are two really tragic verses. For one, we've already talked about kind of the evil nature of, of Babylon. And, and so when you read that the, that the bad guys win and the good guys lose, it, it just doesn't seem right. But that's what happens here. Uh, God, uh, the Nebuchadnezzar comes, marches through, and the bad guys win and the good guys lose. Um, and not just that, it says that they actually carried off some of the articles from the temple, the place that signified and was a reminder of this this relationship that God has with his people, that they were going to be a good and lasting nation. And not only did they just carry off some of the, the artifacts, but actually if you look at all the places where the Bible describes the temple, there were over 500 different artifacts made of gold or silver or bronze or copper or precious stones, including the Ark of the, the Covenant, which represented God's presence. In fact, I, I read something this week that someone had done a study on just the weights of all the gold and silver and bronze and all the things that were used in the temple, and it measured in the, today, by today's dollars in the billions of dollars. And these things that were supposed to represent their relationship with God were now being carried away and put in this pagan temple in Babylon, right? And, and so that should remind us that God's warnings are to be taken seriously. In fact, right here in the very first two verses are maybe a lesson that some of us need to hear today, that God's warnings are to be taken seriously. This didn't happen out of the blue. God had been telling them for years, if you keep turning your back on me, if you keep rejecting me, there will be consequences. And even in the New Testament, we're taught that God cannot be mocked. When we turn our back on God's ways, there will be consequences. Consequences to just the way life goes when we live outside of God's plan or, or outside of God's blessing, or sometimes God allows those evil or the allows those things to happen to us in a way that will, will discipline us to draw us back to him. In fact, at the end of verse 1, it says this. It says, Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem and besieged it. But look at the start of verse 2. You might want to underline this. This is a very key verse for understanding the whole book of, uh, whole, uh, book of Daniel. The beginning phrase of chapter 2 says this. The Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands. It was by God's hand that this consequence came. And some of us need to hear that this morning. Well, verse 3 says this, And then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. And he was to bring in the young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. I don't know about you, but does it sound like he's describing our church youth group right here? I mean, haven't you seen these guys walking around, these kids walking around? So the king assigned 
these, you know, group of the best and brightest, and they assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. And they were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter into the king's service. So this is really smart on the Babylonians' uh, plan here. They find the, the best and the brightest of, among all the different people that they've taken captive, in this case, the people from Judah, and they bring them in. Now, I imagine when they show up to get Daniel and his friends, Daniel and his friends' first thought was, well, this is the end of us, right? They're going to take us in, and because we're going to be the next generation of leaders, they're going to they're just get rid of us. They're going to kill us. Problem is, if they did that, they would have made them martyrs, and people would have risen up. And the goal of Babylon is not necessarily to turn them into martyrs. What they wanted to do was turn them into Babylonians, So they said, we're going to bring you in and we're going to give you all the food and all the wine and all the best and all the literature and all the training and everything that Babylon has to offer. And by the end of these three years, you are going to be so much like us. You are going to love it so much. We will never have to worry about you again. So their goal was to turn them into uh, Babylonians. How do we know that? Look at verse 6. It says this, among those who were chosen were some from Judah. There was Daniel... Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official uh, gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. So in other words, part of their assimilation into Babylonian culture was we are going to give you new Babylonian names. Now, all four of these men that we read about here in Daniel 1 all had really strong, really great, really important Hebrew names. In fact, I can almost imagine these guys when they were little boys being bounced on their mom's uh, knee or on their dad's knee on the hills around Jerusalem. And their parents were telling them, this is why we gave you this name. This is what your name means. And more than this, this is what your name means. This is who you are. This is your identity. So for instance, uh, to Daniel, so much of Daniel's identity is found in his name. His name means God is my judge. That's his Hebrew name. And and it allows Daniel to live like that. I don't have to be afraid of everybody else because, (coughs) excuse me, God is my judge. But they say, we're going to give you a new name. We're going to call you now Belteshazzar. It means may Bel protect him. It's like this cruel pun mocking Daniel and his God. You used to be protected by El, but now we're, you're going to be under the protection of, of Bel. And it's like they're, they're taking away um, even his very identity. To Hananiah, his name means Jehovah is gracious. They said, that's fine, but we're going to give you a new Babylonian name. It means Shadrach. Your name will be Shadrach. It means led by Aku. Aku would be like the, the moon god. So it's like the moon god is going to illuminate your life now, Hananiah. To Mishael, his name in Hebrew means who is like God, who is like El. They said in, in, uh, in, in Babylon, we're going to give you this name, Meshach. It means who is like Shaq. Shaq, of course, is the god of basketball. And <laughs> I just want to make sure you are with me. 
That's actually for the people in the gym service. I just want to make sure everybody's still with us there. Everybody's paying attention. No, uh, Shack was actually like the, the love goddess. It's where we get the word shacking up from. No, that's not true at all either. I just, again, no, that's true. But uh, they changed his name to, to be protected by the, like the goddess of, of love. Um, Azariah, his, his beautiful Hebrew name means Jehovah helps me. They said, we're going to call you Abednego because you are going to now be a servant of Nebo, one of the Babylonian uh, gods of wisdom. So talk about your identity theft, right? They're going to take away what is a, a constant reminder to them that everything that they believed, that everything that they had been raised with was now taken away. How are they going to respond? Is it possible to even thrive in Babylon in a situation like that? Look at verse uh, Eight, it says this, also a very key verse when it comes to understanding all of the book of Daniel. Chapter 1, verse 8, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. So you see that? Daniel knew that it wasn't just their names that were going to be against God, but there were all sorts of things in the Babylonian culture, including in the food and the diet that they were going to give to them. He knew that that was going to go against the, the, the laws that God had passed down to him and his people for all of these many, many years. And so what does Daniel do? Daniel says that, that, that we can't do that. And so Daniel resolves not to defile himself with that. Notice he's not a jerk about it. He doesn't throw a hissy fit about it, but he simply revolves, resolves that I am going to stay faithful to God's laws. And so he respectfully declines to participate. You see, the truth is, is just because you live in Babylon doesn't mean that you have to be a Babylonian. You can live differently. And that's what Daniel does. Let's just read it all the way to the very end now. Verse 9 goes like this. It says, Now God had caused uh, the chief official, I'm sorry, uh, now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my Lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should you be looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would have my head because of you. So in other words, if I, if I don't make you eat this food and you start to look bad, I'm going to be in trouble. The king's going to have my head. So Daniel said to the guard this. He said um, to the chief official whom he had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azar, Please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat at the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So they agreed and they tested them for 10 days. They're going to have this little test. And at the end of 10 days, they look healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. Food. And so the guard took away their choice food and wine and they were to, that they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. I don't love the plan, but it seemed to work uh, great for them. So to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding and all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. And at the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his servants, the, uh, service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they 
they entered the king's service in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them. He found them ten times better than all the other magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. Isn't that amazing? God blessed them. God blessed them far and above what anybody could even imagine. And you know, there's a principle that's being taught here. The principle is this. When you commit to doing God's things, God's ways, God will often honor you by granting you success. Now, this is not 100%. This is not a, you know, how it always goes. Sometimes you can be faithful to God and you will still be persecuted. But here's what I want to say. If you don't know where to go in a certain situation. It's a situation at work. It's a situation in your family. It's a situation in a friendship. Go God's ways and see the blessing that he, he brings. See if not only does he bless you, but as we do things God's way, we're going to find not only the favor of God, but ultimately the favor of people by doing the right thing. God honors the, those that honor him. And so we see that as a principle. So that is Daniel chapter 1. That's Daniel 1. Um, among other things, Daniel 1 is very intentionally given to us to lay a foundation for the rest of the book. And, and so uh, it introduces some reoccurring themes when it comes to thriving in Babylon. So in Daniel chapter 1, I want to suggest two kind of reoccurring things we're going to see several different times over the next seven weeks uh, lived out in uh, the, the rest of the book. And so these two principles, let's just introduce them briefly today, starting with principle number one. If you are going to thrive in Babylon and you want to make a difference, you have to be different. If you really want to make a difference in the world, you have to be different. Daniel and his friends consistently stood out as different from the world around them. And here's the thing. They were okay with it. They were cool with that. And when I say different, I'm not talking about being, you know, weird or crazy. I'm not talking about causing a fuss. I'm not talking about being disrespectful to the, the culture that they were living in. In fact, the, uh, I heard someone say, you'll never make a difference in the world, or you'll never make a difference in the world for, to, if, if people think that you don't like them, right? If, if you're trying to make a difference and people think that you're against them, if you don't like them, they're not going to listen to you. And that's not how Daniel and the others are. They just say, you know what? I'm simply living for God even when it goes against the culture. So how do we do that? Let me just suggest a couple ways here this morning. The first way is this. We show that we are different by living with different values. What are the things that drive us? What are the things that motivate us? What are the values that, that push our life? As a follower of Jesus, our core values are going to not only be different, but oftentimes are going to be in conflict with the non-believing world around us. And that's okay, right? That we wouldn't expect it to be any different. That, that other culture doesn't know God or follow God. This is especially true in what St. Augustine uh, referred to as some of the kind of the key differences. Uh, Augustine identified three kind of core areas where the Christian is going to stand out as different in culture. Um, and they are these things, money, sex, and power. Money, sex, and power. By the way, uh, Augustine wrote about 1,600 years ago. And did you notice these are actually the same things that Solomon struggled with about 3,000 years ago? So the point is there's nothing new under the sun. People have always um, struggled um, with these things. So what does that mean? Well, 
let's think about money first. Babylon approaches money from the standpoint of acquisition, right? In, in, in an ungodly culture, money is all about get all you can, keep all you can, spend all you can. Maybe you give a little bit away to, you know, kind of show people that you're a good person. Uh, but Babylonia, Bab- Babylon culture sees money as security and necessary for the good life, right? If you're going to have a good life, then, then you've got to have these things. However, for the believer, it is Jesus not money, that is our primary treasure. Jesus is our primary treasure in life. So our attitude towards money is, sure, we need money to, to, you know, to live, but we recognize that money is something that God entrusts us to use for his glory. So in Babylon, if the values are greed and acquisition, in the Christian kingdom, it's stewardship and generosity. You see how different those values are. Are going to be, and that's just one area. How about in the area of sex? In Babylon, uh, the, the, the value is this. It's all about me. If it feels good, it can't be wrong. I can come up with whatever I want, do all these things because it's all about me. Christians see sex as a good gift from God that's to be enjoyed according to his amazing design in a lifetime relationship between a husband and wife. Maybe you've heard this before. There's this classic quote uh, from early, uh, from, um, from ancient Roman, uh, uh, an ancient Roman quote from around the time of the early church. And this is how they compared Christians with the other Roman citizens. It said this. It said, Christians are known to be promiscuous or very loose with their money but guarded with their beds. They're promiscuous with their money, but they're guarded with their beds, while most Romans, it said, are stingy with their money, but they're promiscuous with their beds. And the point is, they're different because they have different values. When it comes to power, Babylonian values say, uh, whatever power you have, use it to your advantage. When you can, fight for and hold on to power. But it's something that we use to, to, to grab a hold of more. Whenever you have a chance to get power, grab it. And if you can, grab more. For the Christian, they see it differently. They see things as Jesus did, where he used his power and his position to lift people up, to serve other people. For the followers, of Jesus, uh, we always ask, how can I use any position of power or influence or privilege, whatever I might have, how can I use that to lift up those around me? And so we show that we are different by living with different values. Sometimes we refer the king to the kingdom of God as the upside-down kingdom. And I love that description because it, it may not match up with what the world says is, is going to you know, bring meaning But what we see in this upside-down kingdom is that's who God made us to be. And that's God's best design. So in Babylonian culture, God wants us to thrive in that, to thrive in it. And one of the ways you do that is by being different. Another way that we can show that we are different is we show that we are different by refusing to compromise our integrity. This is so important, and you will stand out as different if you refuse to compromise on your integrity. These four uh, Hebrew young men uh, didn't compromise their convictions, even when it threatened to cost them greatly. You see, for the follower of Jesus, convictions and integrity lived out with love and respect are going to set you apart as different in the world. There are far too few places where you see people living with integrity especially when it's matched with kindness and respect and love. And if you live this way, like Daniel and his friends did, you'll stand out as different. And ultimately, not everybody, but many people will be drawn to that. 
because they'll long for that in their life as well. If you want to make a difference in Babylon, then you've got to be different, different by following the way of Jesus. And then the second thing, and we'll kind of wrap up with this, is if I want to thrive in Babylon, this is so important, I need to learn to live with a trust that God is in control even in Babylon. One of the things that you will never see Daniel and their friends face in all of these chapters, you'll never see them living with panic. You'll never see them living with fear because they know that no matter what comes to them, they're going to face some really hard situations, but they know no matter what comes to them, God is in control. By the way, this is the same attitude that we see in much of the teaching to the exiles living wherever they are um, outside of the promised land. So in the book of Jeremiah, and I invite you to turn in your Bible to Jeremiah 29. I want you to see this. It's kind of a companion passage that goes with the book of Daniel. Jeremiah 29 is a section where God speaks through Jeremiah again to the exiles living in captivity. And I want you to see what God says to them. Jeremiah 29. Verse 4 says this, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So notice that. How did they get from Jerusalem to Babylon? God carried them. God was in control even when it didn't feel like it. Even when it seemed like things weren't going the way that they hoped, still God was in control. And so what could they do because of that? He says, because of that, in verse 5, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat from what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that you too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because as it prospers, you too will prosper. You see, because God is in control, you can live at peace even as exiles In a foreign land, you can thrive even in Babylon. The principle is so important for us today because there's there's kind of this underlying thing as Christians that we want to just get away from whatever we can and find a safe place. And, and And I understand that. But what God is saying through Jeremiah is no, God's with you there. God is in control. It's not like you accidentally fell into the situation that you were in. God is with you. And so you can be at peace and you can settle down. You can serve there. And in fact, if that city that you're in prospers, you know what happens? You prosper as well. And God's talking about Babylon. You guys, it is no mistake where you live. It is no mistake the time that you live in. It is no mistake the family that you are in, the street that you live in, the job that you are in. You may not like any of it, but it's not a mistake and God is in control. And here's the deal. We can live with peace because not only do we know that God is in control, but we know the one who controls the future. You see, Daniel lived with great peace and confidence. Why could he do that? Because Daniel remembered and he believed in the promise that God made to his ancestor Abraham all those years ago. When God said, you're going to be a great nation and you're going to be a great people, you're going to last and I'm going to be with you. And so even when it didn't feel like it, Daniel could hold firm to those promises. And as we think about how we can have peace, can I tell you something? I've read the end of the book. I've read the end of Daniel. I've read the end of the New Testament. Spoiler alert, God wins. 
and it's going to be okay. I know. I know. And yet we live with all of this anxiety when we should be able to trust that God is in control. To help me explain that, um, let me uh, just give you a little illustration of this. Uh, Many of you know that I am a big San Francisco Giants fan. Um, And so way back in 2014, which was a while ago, and when the Giants um, used to be good, or they were good, um, they found themselves in the World Series. And they were not just in the World Series, they were in Game 7 of the World Series. Not just Game 7, they were in the bottom of the ninth with two outs in the World Series, and they were winning by one run. It was so tense for for everybody watching these games, especially if you're a Giants fan living and dying by this. Um, So what I'm about to show you is not that flattering of me, um, but this is me and my 10-year-old daughter, Mary, who happened to be watching the very end of game seven, two outs, bottom of the ninth, and things were tense. Let me just tell you, things were tense because we knew one mistake and everything could go wrong. And there was one uh, Giants outfielder who made a little mistake, and this is what it looked like in our house. Popped out back, and out of play, and right now, even though... Yeah, their guy could hit a home run, too. This is their best hitter overall. He's been bad in this. Here's the one. That's in the air to left center. That ball is gone. Oh, 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 Stop it. That is going to be a home run. No. I thought that was going to be a home run. <laughs> no. Mom is recording that. <laughs> yeah. So I told you that was going to be a little embarrassing for me. But I show that to help all of us because I think that's sometimes the way that we live. We look at the world and we're like, ah, ah, all of these things. It's all falling apart. The world is all of these things. Yet look at Daniel who simply resolved that I am going to trust in God. His response wasn't panic. His response wasn't fear. It was, I am going to not defile myself. I'm going to live differently. I'm going to live with godly integrity, and I'm going to let God take care of the rest. And I know God's promises so I can be at peace. Here's the way that story ends. So let me just tell you, a a few months ago, uh, they happened to be showing that game as a replay on TV, and I sat and watched it for a few minutes. And you know what I did? I sat there in total calm. I was not worried. There was no rolling around on the floor. There was no terrifying my children or anything like that. Why could I do that? I knew the way the game ended. I knew that it was going to be okay. I knew that we won uh, the game. Can we live with that kind of faith and trust in God? In fact, let me just wrap up today um, by actually skipping ahead to the very end uh, of the book of Daniel. Because eventually what happens is the Babylonians are overthrown by the next world power. It's going to be the Persians. Nations come and go. But again, through trust in God and through his integrity, Daniel actually rises in the, the system of the Persians. Daniel becomes known as the chief advisor for all of Persia. Does anybody know what they call the chief advisors of Persia? It is the term the magi. The people who were the leaders in in this court were the magi. Bible trivia question, where else do you hear about the magi? 
at Christmas time in Matthew chapter 1, when these magi, these wise men from the east, somewhere over around Babylon, show up to bring gifts and to worship Jesus. Have you ever wondered where in the world did these magi from over around Babylon ever hear to come and bring gifts and worship a Jewish Messiah? Unless maybe, just maybe, centuries before, there was an exile named Daniel who lived differently and lived with faith. And because he thrived in Babylon, literally, the world was changed. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for the story of Daniel, Lord, stories to encourage and build our faith and cause us to live with faith wherever you have us. So I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters here today. Lord, give us the courage, give us the integrity to do the next right thing, to follow you even when it's hard. I pray, Lord, for what you want to do in our lives and in this church and in this community as we thrive right here in this place where you have us. We love you and we give you all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.